this world, Lord, what you're doing um, through your people, the church, God. We ask as we come before your word, Father, that you would be speaking to us, Lord. Um, We long to hear from you, not from a man. Lord, we want to know what your word says, Lord. So we ask that in this time, as we come before your word, Lord, that you would send your spirit to open up our hearts and our minds. Lord, stir our affections for Christ. And Lord, to obedience to Christ, Lord, that we might know the breadth and the depth that you have worked in us, Lord, in Christ Jesus, Lord. So we ask for this time, Lord, be with us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so I think, as you know at this point, Bob is on sabbatical, so he's not preaching this month. We're giving him um, the time to rest. Resting is good. Resting and refreshing. Yeah. Um, uh, Spurgeon once said that you never fault a uh, a gardener for stopping in the middle of his day to sharpen his tools. Because the only way he's going to get through that day is by stopping and sharpening his tools. So we do not fault Bob at all from sitting down and refreshing and thinking through stuff. So be praying for him as he refreshes that he'll be sharper and ready, ready for the fight again. So it's our honor to give him this time. Um, so we decided when um, planning this sabbatical um, that we, we were interested in doing a series together, um, the guys who are, have been preaching, although for various circumstances it's going to mostly be me, okay, so be praying for me, please, 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 okay. Um, but we wanted to go to the book of Ephesians and look at Ephesians in kind of broad pictures. Not, sometimes we can get a little microscopic and we look at words and clauses and phrases, and that's not a bad thing. But sometimes you miss, to use the idiom, the forest for the trees, and you miss the big picture of what the book of Ephesians is about. So if, if you almost take Ephesians in its, in its broadest statement, it's, it's answering what God is doing in the world and what the church has to do with it. Sometimes you, might, you need to ask yourself, you know, is God doing something in this world? Because sometimes you read the news and you kind of wonder, is anything happening? Uh, but the answer is yes. And the primary means by which God is working in this universe is through his church, spreading his church, spreading the Great Commission, going to all the nations, making disciples, baptizing them, teaching to obey all that I commanded. Um, So God's program for the universe is centered in Christ, and it's centered specifically in his relationship with the church. And one of the key verses in Ephesians, and one of the key statements, I think, in the Bible, comes from Ephesians chapter 1, verse 9, where it says that God is making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose. His purpose, which he has set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. So when time wraps up and we've reached the end and we look backwards at all that God has been doing, what is the fullest expression of what he has done throughout all of history? And this is it. To unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. All things. There's not one square inch of this universe, not one square inch 
of all human endeavor and enterprise, every relationship that's ever existed, every type of relationship that's ever existed, your job, economics, mathematics, your friendships, all things Christ is concerned about for his glory. There's not one square inch over the universe of which Christ, who is not Lord over all, does not cry, mine. It is for me, it's to glorify me. And yes, we enjoy these things, but the fullness of time is God uniting all things in Christ so that he might be head over all. The, the thing at which is pointed to. Now, what does the church have to do with that? It is exhibit A of Christ doing this very thing. So we are looking in Ephesians chapter 2. So Ephesians chapter 1 was God in the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all working together in harmony to exalt each other. God lifts up the Son. The Son points back to the Father, and the Holy Spirit opens our hearts to see them, to see Christ as a glorious Savior, and to see our Father as a precious Father, and gives us those affections, so that the whole Trinity is at work in this very purpose in us. And we see that in chapter 1. It's probably one of the most glorious statements in the Bible. And then it moves in to kind of this cosmic realities, and zooms down in chapter 2 that says, and you... And you, individual, were dead in your trespasses and sins. But God, because of his great mercy with which he loved us, saved us. And it has this great statement of the riches, of the grace which Christ is poured out on us in salvation. It says in verse 10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are his workmanship. He has done something in us. Through us. Now, we're in verse 12, 11, excuse me. So we're going back to the idea, it kind of combines both of them, of individual salvation and uniting things together that you would never think belong together. So it says in verse 11, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the quote unquote uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision, which is made in, uh, in the flesh by hands, remember, remember something. Now, Gentiles, okay, um, when my daughters are born, it's kind of like the world, I look at my daughter, and the world is composed of two types of people, mommy, not mommy. Okay? All other categories, in some sense, do not exist. Mommy and not mommy, and guess which one daddy is? Not mommy. Okay. So in some sense, when God looks in the world, he sees my people and not my people. All right. And so Gentiles is kind of a name for not my people. Because these are the people that worship other things other than God. They are, to use kind of an old term, pagans. They bow down to idols. And you think America is um, oh so different, but we're pagans. We have our idols that we bow down to. And we worship with our affections and our money and our time. Anyways. So, Gentiles. Remember that you were at one time, at, at, excuse me, that you were at the time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant promises, having no hope, Without God in the world. Okay, so we're going to start right there. So before, and this would, this would be us, before we were united to Christ, we were considered to be two things, strangers and aliens. Let me unpack those. The first one, strangers, um, is literally, these, these are citizenship words. A stranger is like someone in Brazil with respect to America. I'm only picking on Brazil because it's going to be the place of Olympics. So we're going to have a lot of um, Brazil. We'll be looking at Brazil a lot. But it's like someone in Brazil okay, looking in America. They don't have citizenship. They probably haven't a clue, for the most part, what goes on in the average American day, just the same way we probably don't have a clue what goes on in average Brazilian day. There's probably some similarities. But there are unique social, political differences. Okay, the same is, in a sense, true for 
all the Gentiles, that we had no clue what was going on over in this nation of Israel. Completely strangers to it. So strangers from Israel and aliens. Okay, aliens is kind of like illegal aliens, like that type of aliens. Like, actually, probably a better word is sojourners. Sojourners are people that come into the land, and they're living around, but they don't actually have any particular rights. So in the Old Testament, uh, a sojourner could come into the land of Israel, but they had to live in tents. They couldn't own land. They couldn't, they, they had some protection from justice and some ability to, you know, if they were in poverty, to get food, but they weren't allowed to have their own crops and their own, it's, it's like, you're welcome to be here, but you're welcome not to establish yourself here. This land belongs to the people of God, and you are not quite the people of God. Okay? Those are the aliens. And most importantly, they were not involved in the full access to temple worship. So temple worship is where the people of God came and had fellowship with God and worshipped God. And, and there was this thing called the outermost... There's concentric circles, as it were. Not circles, but concentric squares, I guess. And the outermost was the courts of the Gentiles. And that's as close as you got. Because though you can come near and, as it were, peer into the window at the special relationship that God has with his people, you actually could not fully participate in it. There was, as it were, a wall or a barrier that you could not cross. Now, that's not to say that Gentiles could not be saved. Because there's obvious in the Old Testament some Gentiles were saved. Ruth would be like the classic example. Okay? But in the full scale, they were never considered 100% all the way in. Okay? That was us. Now, the biggest, I think the biggest issue um, comes right here. They were strangers to the covenants of promise. It seems like this year we've talked a lot about covenants, which is fine by me because it's, it's awesome. So first of all, he, he mentions covenants, plural, which means that as you look back at the Old Testament and say, okay, God made these agreements, these promises. Okay. And, and, and explicitly spoken, there's two of them. In, in Genesis 12, God makes a covenant with Abraham says, hey, come out of your land, come into this land that I will give you, and I will be your God, you will be my people, and I will bless you and multiply you, you'll have riches, and you'll have, you'll have descendants as numerous as the stars in the heaven, as many as the uh, uh, sands on the sea. Right? So basically, the point being innumerable. You made this promise to Abraham. But then the key moment in that covenant says, and God says, and in you, I will bless the world. Paraphrasing here. I will bless the world. And then the other one has to do with uh, Israel. When God delivers Israel, brings them into the wilderness and says, okay, and here it is again. Uh, you will be my people. I'll be your God. So the point being, right at this moment, that you need to understand is that covenants is always in context with relationships. It's kind of the big point. Relationship. The only reason God would establish a covenant with you is because he wanted to be in relationship with you. And here are the stipulations. So the closest thing that we have in our culture, this idea of covenants, and Alan preached this like three or four months ago, is marriage. Is marriage. You say, I'm binding myself to you in this exclusive relationship, okay, and there's laws to that, right? You're not going to go sleeping around. You've devoted yourself to this person. And so there's structure behind it. And in much of the same way, when God draws his people out and says, okay, you are going to be my people, here is how you're going to behave. You're going to be different. You're, going to have, you're not going to eat the same foods. You're not going to dress the same way. And these were all all pictures of uniqueness, that you are going to be a unique people on this earth. And he says these are the covenants of promise because the ultimate goal in these things is God, as as it were, looking forward to Jesus Christ. To Jesus Christ. 
Paul makes this argument. So Paul is like a Pharisee, and he saw himself, before he was saved, before he knew about Christ, he saw himself as deserving of all promises that God ever made. So it's like, well, God, I'm your people, because I'm an Israelite, I'm a, you know, I'm a Pharisee, I do everything right, I deserve every promise. And, and two things happened to him when Christ revealed himself to, revealed himself to Paul. The first thing was, Paul realized that he was a sinner undone. That he had sin, and he did not deserve anything from God. Nothing. He deserved to be cast out from the people of God, to not be a recipient of any blessing whatsoever. The second thing was, as he looks back in the Bible, in the Old Testament, he realizes the, the <laughs> As a contract, God had been very particular. And he had used a certain, well, we'd, we'd say letter. He said, Oh, and Abraham, to your seed, now you think, okay, so to all my offspring. And Paul looks back and says, Oh, no. He said, to his seed. And so writing, writing in these epistles, especially Galatians, Paul looks back and says, Oh, God's promise ultimately was made to Jesus Christ. So the, the promise, I will give you the nations, you could have the whole world, is ultimately made to Jesus Christ. So now, suddenly, Jews have a problem, Gentiles have a problem. Jews thought they were natural heirs of all the promises that God has made, but in point of fact, God was pointing to Christ saying, no, he's the one. And then the Gentiles don't even have a clue the system exists. They have no clue that God had made these great and glorious promises. They were called without hope, without Christ in the world. So, with that setup, let's read these verses that follow. You were separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenant promises, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You were strangers, you were as far away, but because Christ died on the cross, people who are far away are being brought in to this relationship, this people of God relationship. For he himself is our peace, who has made both made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in the ordinances that might, he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. Okay. So remember, the big picture in Ephesians is God uniting all things to himself under Christ. And what he's saying is, there was a division between you and Israel. Remember that, my people, not my people, ethnically. And so a Gentile, even though they can get saved and be in a relationship with God, there is still this wall. And you cannot get in to the fullest expression of worship because of this wall. So Christ comes and, as it were, tears down the wall. Because at his death, one of the things that happened, one of the, one of the many miracles that happened at the death of Jesus Christ is when he died, a veil was torn inside the temple. So inside the temple was the Holy of Holies, the place where God's presence was, and Christ rips it down. So that God's presence now starts, as it were, leaving the Holy of Holies, going out into the temple, into the world. And Jesus Christ had made a, a, uh, two major brouhaha's in the temple at the beginning of his ministry. And at the end of the ministry, where the, he went into the temple precincts and he looks around at the courts of Gentiles saying, okay, you guys are basically set up a huge bazaar, a huge marketplace in the place where the Gentiles are supposed to worship. Apparently, you don't care very much about the Gentiles, but I do. And he cleanses the Gentile courts of all this commerce because this place is supposed to be a place of prayer, 
a place of communion with God. And a day was coming that Christ knew that he was going to open up the Holy of Holies and Gentiles were now going to have access. So he's cleaning shop saying, no, the Gentiles will not have access to this as well. So Christ broke down this wall. Now, 17, verse 17, he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. Okay. So notice what he's saying. Those far off. That is the world. Those who are near, that is Israel. There are people who are close by in the covenants. In the people of God, Israel, but not believers. Thinking all was well with them, but it was not. It was the the issue with Paul. He thought God owed him promises. And God owed him no such thing. So those who are near... Christ preached peace. You need peace with God. And to those who are far off, Gentiles, you need peace. You need peace with God. So both groups suddenly realize that though they look a little bit different, maybe a lot of different, a lot of different, you still have the same fundamental issue. You need peace with God. And in Christ, we all, both groups, have access to God. For through Him... We both, both people, have access in one spirit to the Father. So there is no distinction between ethnic Jews and Gentiles. We are all now, because of the cross, one people of God. if I want to say this. I think I will. So then we need to be careful about how we view ethnic Israel today. To think that all is inherently well with them when it is not. That they are not at peace with God. I had a friend who was in a coffee shop and he was reading these verses like this and he looks over to him and there's a guy sitting with one of those Jewish hats on. And he says, Oh, this is great. He's going to want to hear this. So he walks up and says, hey, are you a Jew? And he says, why, yes, I am. He goes, I love your Messiah. Like, he, he, is, he is my Savior. He's Jesus Christ. And I, I get to join in with you in all, these, all, all the blessings that God promised to Israel. <laughs> Explosive anger. <laughs> Explosive standing up, hurling profanities anger yelling and hurling insults at him, proving that ultimately, (laughs) demonstrating it again, sadly, that not all Israel are truly Israel. And that there are these Gentiles, like my friend, who are truly Israel, truly people of God. Through him we both have access in one spirit to, as it were, the same Father, the same Holy Spirit indwells all people. Pointing us to the same Father. So that verse 19, you are no longer strangers or aliens. Remember, that's what we started with. You were strangers. You were aliens. But now, no longer. Instead, because of what Christ has done, because he's given you his Spirit and he's given you access to the Father, you are Fellow citizens, with all the benefits and prerogatives therewith. It's like getting your American citizenship and getting the full protection of that government. So too, we have all the blessings that belong to Israel and all the protection. And that is why you can read your Old Testament with joy and hope and expectation. That's why the Psalms actually mean something to you. That God protects his people. Because you're his people. And that's why you're excited when you read that God is coming again to restore his kingdom. That's exciting news to you because that's your kingdom that's coming and you're part of it. Because otherwise you should be utterly terrified because when one kingdom comes in, it's war. God, the, the kingdom comes in and they judge the enemies. And you see this in Revelation. Christ coming with an army and conquering the earth. But... You can, you can look forward to that with hope and expectation because it's as if America just showed up 
and made the little plot of land you're living on America. So you were strangers, but now you're fellow citizens, and you once were aliens, but now you're members of the household of God. Okay. House, anytime, by the way, the New Testament says members of the household, in English we say, like, nucleus family. Like the people that you wake up to and sit at the table with and eat cereal with. Right? Those people. Yeah. The, the ones you share the bathroom with. All that, so the, all that family interaction, you are now in it. Part of it. So the difference was, and, and literally, um, in, in, the, in the language of sojourner, the word is a compound word, beside the house. Beside the house. Like, at best, you can come up and set your tent beside a house and kind of glance in and say, oh, what's going on in there? Okay, but you weren't in the house. And now, you are in the house. You're adopted. You're part of the family of God. So God is your father. Christ is your brother. And he brings you in to all of what that entails. So, if you have placed your faith in Christ, you have, and you belong to, a different country. I like America. It's not my ultimate allegiance. It's not my ultimate allegiance. You, you kind of belong to a different world. A new heavens and a new earth. Because that's, that's in the reading of Hebrews 11. Abraham's walking on this plot of land, dusty with his cattle, walking around. And what is, what is he looking forward to? A city not made with hands. There was something coming. Something coming that he was looking forward to. And then in Romans chapter 4, it says that Abraham, we think Abraham was just looking at this dusty piece of land saying, well, this is going to be my home, when in fact it said Abraham understood that he was going to be an heir of the world. An heir of the world. The world. Israel, it's not the world. It's not big enough. No, the whole world. Because, ultimately, Christ is heir of the world. So if you're united to Christ and you get all the blessings with Christ, awesome! The world that's coming. New heavens and new earth. And this world is fading away. So don't get too attached. Don't get too attached. Now, this idea of unification. These two people are one in Christ Jesus. They have two, application, two immediate applications, one of which is what the rest of the sermon series is going to be about. If we are one people, okay, and I don't think, is anybody Jewish here? I don't think so. It doesn't matter. Because <laughs> now we are one people together. Okay? So there's a unity and a responsibility for mutual upbuilding. Now, we're going to spend two or three sermons talking about what the mutual upbuilding is going to look like. Right now, I just want to talk a little bit about the unity. This stuff is strange. I mean, it really, I, I was even thinking about it when I was reading through this, like, covenants, temples, stuff that doesn't even, you don't have this stuff in America. It's just so, like, ancient third world, right? It's way over there, and it has no bearing on us. So I'm not sure... Like, I, I feel like as I learn the Old Testament, I'm getting it, like, by degrees, more and more. Like, oh, oh, that's what you're saying. Oh, oh, that's great. Oh, and it, it's like this knowledge, as it were, this intellectual knowledge is increasing. So, you, you may have, like, no, you may feel like you have no clue what's going on in your Bible sometimes. In the Old Testament, you may feel like you have no clue. It's like, you were a stranger to it. Right? A stranger to it. The picture is like this. You're like an orphan. And you live in this faraway country in like this impoverished orphanage. And one day, this really kind person comes and adopts you. And you're like super excited. Like, all right, I'm getting pulled out of this orphanage. And, I'm, and all right, I've always wanted a family. And, and so now, and so you, you get like this, this, this father who adopts you, 
and he brings you home, and, and you know, you, you know, fly the plane, get in the car, and you're driving up to the house, and you're saying, wait, that's my house? Oh, yeah, that's your house. And, and, and then as you start, as it, like the dawning realization comes, like, wait a second, this, this guy who adopted me is no ordinary guy. And it, and it hits you. Oh, oh, he's the king. The king just adopted me. And, and then, first, that's amazing. And then the next thing that starts dawning on you, what does that make me? If that's the king, who am I? Oh, oh, I am a child of the king. And there are bazillion blessings that come with being the child of the king. Like, all these blessings. And so, <clears throat> we sometimes, it's like, that's us. We get saved, we're happy we're saved, and then it's like Ephesians is the guy who taps on your shoulder and says, hey, you know what? Do you know who you are? Do you know what you're a part of? And so it points you back saying, look back at all this material. All those blessings, they're yours. And so Paul is just laying these out. These are ours. So you're like an alien. Or you're like a sojourner. You're like me. You're like a kid who grew up in church, having, having, didn't have a clue what was going on. So I'm like an alien. I'm like a sojourner. I'm in the people of God, but I'm not really part of the people of God. I hear, but I'm not really hearing. I see, I'm not really seeing, because there's no faith. It means nothing to me. And then one day, God comes in and, boom, the gospel makes complete sense. I understand that I am a wretched sinner in need of a glorious Savior who would take my sins, and there's nothing I could ever do to earn any of God's blessings. And so suddenly I came from being a sojourner, like someone kind of in the people but not really belonging, to a family member. And there's a world of difference. And there's a world of difference. Or maybe it's just something in between. Like maybe you're kind of a stranger, maybe a sojourner. But somewhere in there, at some point, these things start making sense to you as you you learn it. So there are... This is interesting. There are two prayers in the book of Ephesians. Um, let me read you the first one. This, and this is helping. When Paul prays these prayers, it kind of helps you see what he's driving at. So you've heard this. Now what are you supposed to get out of it? Prayer number one. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love for all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ Jesus when he raised him from the dead and seated him as right hand in the heavenly places, that you may know, know, and this word right here is cognitive knowledge, the stuff that you know with your head. And he's telling this to Christians. He's writing to Ephesians. These are Christians. He knows it. He said, there's still things you need to know and learn and grow in. And as you do, you realize what? What is the glorious riches of his inheritance towards the saints? What is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us? These things we're going to know when we saturate ourselves in this book. And things that start to seem very, very foreign to you in the Old Testament with all its weirdness begins to make sense because God is in there showing you things step by step, degrees by degree. That's why you should probably be reading your Old Testament, your whole Bible, every year. So you might know these things. So that is the first prayer. So it has to do with the first prayer that Paul has to do with head knowledge. Now, second prayer. So after he's told them everything, all this doctrine, he moves into chapter 3, and the chapter 3 is kind of like this transition from, okay, so you, you know these things, and now it's going to result in certain actions. And now listen to his prayer this time. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in the heaven on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened 
with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Now, this know is a different word for know. The first one was head knowledge, and this one is experience knowledge. The knowing that comes from doing or being brought through stuff. This is the stuff, like, the thing that happens in your life over and over again, like, like you're a teenager, and your parents telling you something, it's like, yeah, 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 I get it, I get it, I get it. And then now you're like, you know, you know get through your 20s, you're like, oh, yeah. Oh, now I really get it. Because <laughs> you just went through it, and you're like, my dad was right, okay? Yeah, that type of knowing, the stuff that grows on you. Yeah, all right, he's cheering. I was talking about my brothers. <laughs> experience knowledge. So you might experientially know the love of Christ that surpasses head knowledge. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So we need to know these things both intellectually with our heads and experientially in our lives. And then, as a people of God, we encourage each other to that end. It seems like such a small thing. Let's see how many, 30, 40 people, if, if that, if you count the kids. It seems like such a small thing that we are gathered together. I mean, compared to what's going on in this world, you know how many people tuned into the boxing match last night? You know how many people tune into a ball game? Like millions of people are watching these things. And then all of a sudden, like 30 to 40 people come into this room. And to God, it is a big deal. It is like the biggest deal of anything going on in this world. That there are people called by his name who are coming together. All of us with our differences different personalities, different backgrounds, different ages, different social classes, different, different everything sometimes, right? And, and you look at me, it's like, like during the Jesus movement, when all the hippies got saved and the hippies walked into the church and everybody's like, oh my goodness. <laughs> oh my goodness. But you know what God does? He unites them. And they love each other. And that's, and that's us. So corporately, we worship together. We lift our voices together to the same Father. We love a common Savior. We're unified by the same Spirit. We encourage each other. We, we are in each other's lives. We're encouraging each other when we're brokenhearted. We're spurring each other on when you're being lazy. You are calling each other out when you're in sin. Because we are a common people together, and that's what people in the same house do. That's what common citizens do. They live together, and they push each other forward. And it's a big deal because we are declaring to the world. We stand here as a declaration to the world, the power of God, to unite all these people together. And we demonstrate, okay, because like, like the world can, right? They will one day. But right now, Ephesians says, there are heavenly powers heavenly authorities looking down. You don't know they're there, but they are. They're looking down and they're looking at us. And God is demonstrating to them. I don't know if he's talking about heavenly angels or fallen demons or both. But he's demonstrating to them his manifold wisdom. God's wisdom is on display right here. And throughout the week when we fellowship together. Because of the accomplished work of Christ, this is happening. And so one day, uh, Revelation chapter 5 tells us there's going to be a gathering of the saints from every tongue, tribe, people, language, and uh, people, language. Okay, lots of people from lots of categories in humanity. Every, as it were, square inch, every nook and corner of humanity, everything that makes people kind of different and distinct as people groups, all represented before the throne of God, and it's for that very reason that they are excited, and they praise God. 
Because God didn't just save one type of people. He saved all types of peoples. To the praise of His glory. So, the church stands as exhibit A of what God is doing in this world, reconciling all things to himself and his son. And that is one of the pictures of communion. Because we as one people come to a table, partake of one loaf, one uh, glass of wine, as it were, that's how it started. We, we broke up the loaf for you and fished out the wine into a little cup. But the idea is that it came from one common source. And we, we savior, savor one common Savior. And so in this moment, as we come to communion, we are celebrating together our unity under a God who graciously, powerfully, and majestically saves. So if the worship team would come up and the ushers, ushers.
So at communion, we celebrate the death of Christ because by his blood we have been brought near to those who are far off. He did this work, and so is our celebration. So Paul says, I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you in that day that Christ, on the night that which he was betrayed, took bread and he broke it, giving thanks, saying, This is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. same way he took the cup, blessing it, saying this is the blood of the new covenant poured out for forgiveness of sins. Uh, drink this cup, and often as you do it, do it in remembrance of me. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are a saving God, a loving Father, looking down at this world in love, looking at people with no hope without you. You sent your Son to this world to reconcile us to God, to take care of the penalty of sin, the wrath of God fully absorbed in him so we might have fellowship with you as a Father. And Lord, you've also broken down the barriers of hostility that exist between Humans, Lord, and you have brought together from the diversity of all humanity people who are your body, the church. And so, Lord, we pray that these truths would become precious to us. And Lord, as we continue to look in your word as to the implications of what this means, what it means for us as a church to stand here as your people and declare to people of your manifold wisdom and your power as you demonstrate it, God. Lord, help us to be obedient to it. And Lord, any attitudes that divide us, Lord, any murmuring, any, any sin that's keeping us from each other, Lord, I pray that these would come out. Lord, that you'd make us a unified people. Lord, we know that Satan is one who divides. And so we would want to be protected from that, Lord, because he hates you, and he hates that this is on display. Lord, so we pray that this church would be Redwood Christian Fellowship, a church of fellowship. So we ask for your help and your strength, Lord. We thank you for our Savior. Lord, help us to live as, as sojourners in this world. We do not belong to this world. We're just passing through. We're looking forward to the coming of a heavenly kingdom, your kingdom, a city not made with human hands, Lord, may our hearts be, be drawn that way, God. Even as we go this week with our jobs, our lives, our families, Lord, that we do it in light of this glorious truth, Lord. So we thank you and we praise you in Christ's name. Amen. Please stand as we close. So there's refreshments, of course, in the back. It's great to spend time with you. and The Lord bless you.